was all of these hurdles that we had to cross. You know, we had to, I had to pitch it to Gail Zappa, who had, who was not known for giving anyone the right to tell a story about Frank, much less give him the vault access. Not that I was asking for vault access, because I wasn't, but that was a fairly big hurdle that took some time. It took some time to win over her trust. She really liked my take, which was helpful. I think that was the kind of story she herself had wanted to see told. But once she gave us access to the vault, it honestly changed the next two years, three years really of my life, because we mostly worked on the vault. Uh, first, we had to ra raise the money to preserve media that was down there that was deteriorating. And then we had to do the preservation work. And uh, doing a Kickstarter campaign of that scale is extremely time uh, intensive, extremely, like as much as making a, a feature. So my whole life just stopped and I just did a crowdfund campaign for the better part of a year. Uh, and then we raised the money. As soon as we started to raise money off of that, we began a preservation project. So that ran concurrent with the crowdfund. Uh, and we spent the next two years just preserving media in the vault. That's all we did day in, day out. And so it was after that, I then had to go and get financing. And I, and I say again, I mean, find financing for the doc, which I did not have, which was completely separate from the crowdfund. So it was just a very big project for us. And we're really grateful that we got to do it. And we're really, I'm really grateful that the response has been so positive. Um, but it was a monster of a project. Did you anticipate that it was going to take even, you know, ballpark that much time to, to finish? Yes, I, I did. I did not want to rush a documentary about Zappa. While I knew that that the narrative that I had in my head had parameters. I did not want to make a five-hour film, and I did not want to make a series, and I did not want to make a film that, that was going to try to encompass his entire career and go album to album. I knew that huge chunks of his biography were, were going to be left out. I really wanted to tell the story about a man, about an artist who lived at that particular period in American history, uh, and how engaged he was both with his art his immediate life and then the political life. Um, it was just, it's a great life story. But I knew that that was not going to be something that we could rush. And Mike Nichols, the editor, and I, from the get-go, uh, kind of took a deep breath and, and did not rush and spent er time early on in, in the doc process just watching media and making notes and trying some pretty outlandish things before we even began to attempt to, to structure it. What do you mean when you say outlandish things? Like what's an example of the kind of the more out there stuff that you tried? Well, there, the media was guiding us to a degree. Uh, we found that Zappa had cut a lot of film and his editing style was really specific and it was his style. It was, he was the one doing it. He had a flatbed, a Steenbeck flatbed in his office. When I first walked into the house, I saw it right away. Uh, that's what I cut on all through college and after. So I'm intimate with that machine, but he also had rewinds and he was a kid and would cut eight mil and super eight, uh, which I did too. Uh, and so did my editor, Mike, we were both super eight fanatic kids. It just happened to be a coincidence. Uh, so we looked at a lot of his material and the way he would edit, and we wanted to create a kind of expressionistic aspect to the film that would convey Zappa's inner life that wouldn't just rely on external interviews or even his own first person narration, which we had a lot of from the vault. Not that it was just clean. We had to build it. We had to Frankenstein it. It was just like in pieces all over the place. We made this thing, thing that felt like it was narration. So we spent time, uh, quite a bit of time actually, crafting story in an expression, expressionistic way. Some of it survived. Uh, some of it was never meant to survive. Uh, I think the what survived the most, which is intentional, frankly, was the very aggressive uh, first 10, 11 minutes of the film, which are extremely expressionistic and kind of an attempt to convey, well, A, to kind of grab the viewer and, and shake him up a little bit and get them into Zappa's mindset. And then the end of the film, which is similarly expressionistic, but in a much calmer, 
more dreamlike way. He's a more mature person and he's dying and there's all these things going on. Uh, those things lasted, but they were both much longer. I mean, there was a period where that first act was all aggressive like that for like almost a half an hour. And Mike and I loved it, but we knew there was no audience would ever have, <laughs> it would ever have sat through it and it would never have been sold. <laughs> the first like, yeah, several minutes of the, the film are... I think like pretty much exclusively through his voice. I was wondering like if, if that was going to be the, the tack that you were taking, like how much of this movie was really going to be Zappa on Zappa. Was, was, that, was that an angle that you considered? Um, I didn't because I knew very well what I had down there uh, thematically from him, from, from Frank himself. We built a timeline of all of the 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 blather uh, i don't mean that in a derogatory way i just mean anything we could find that had frank talking about his life we compiled it and it was a mess as you can imagine because he didn't intend to narrate his life we were finding them in old interviews that had never gone live and him shooting the, the breeze with friends down in the basement anywhere we found frank talking also just a sheer volume of stuff that he must have had because like he had videos like he, he had videos that he shot on his father's video recorder as a kid Oh, and, and he continued to shoot video through his whole life. So he had, we had just miles and miles of video of different things. So we compiled all that, uh, but I knew that there were gaps there in terms of his internal life. And I knew that I would need to get some exterior interviews from, uh, but I did not want to get many of them. I wanted to be very limited in, in who we got. And it wasn't, it wasn't about who they were uh, individually. It was about what they could offer us from a narrative perspective. So uh, we would go after people for just to get answers to maybe one question or two questions. And obviously I'd, I'd interview them for a long time so I could get more out of it. But uh, who the interview subjects were, were really based on what gaps we had in the narrative. You mentioned the the take that you brought to, to Gail. What, what was that? And, and I'm sure again, like it's been decades of people approaching her trying to do some kind of uh, Zappa documentary. Um, how was yours different? I had no idea. I mean, I didn't know. I didn't think she was going to say yes. And I certainly didn't know I was going to, I was bringing her something that she hadn't been pitched a hundred times before. I hadn't the slightest idea. Uh, I mean, you, you pitch docs all the time. And a lot of time people are like, Oh, you know, so-and-so just came in here with the same pitch. Thank you very much. I didn't want theirs and I don't want yours either. That could very well have been what she said to me and what I have expected her to say to me. But, um, because I had nothing to lose and because I honestly didn't expect her to say yes, I, um, I didn't really pitch an open-ended idea. I, I went in there and I pitched, I pitched uh, telling a story in a very, very specific way. Um, and then I also wanted final cut and that I was perfectly happy just to have met her and to leave. And that would be fine. I wasn't rude about it, but I was pretty firm. Um, and uh, the, the, the angle was that uh, I did not feel like I'd ever seen Zappa uh, the inner life of Zappa expressed anywhere. I mean, literally anywhere. Um, he was very protective of his image. He was a very, I would say, despite his, his reputation, a, a quite convivial person Most in most of the press I'd seen him in. Very jovial, had a great sense of humor. He could be biting, could be snarky, but, but you could see that he was, you know, even his SNL experiences, which are so grim for him, he's, I liked him when I was a kid. I, I didn't think, oh, that person's inaccessible. I thought he had a very accessible personality. Hmm. But knowing his life story, I knew there was an intimate Zappa. And I didn't just want to get to it in some kind of, I don't know, Us Magazine way, like cracking the shell or something superficial. But I felt there was a very brilliant, deep, complicated, interesting human being back there that would make a great story. And so what I pitched to her was I really wanted to make 
a kind of an artistic expressionistic examination of Zappa's life that was intimate and was not a music movie and was not a movie about a mustachioed, long-haired 70s guitar player, which I think is what almost everyone was pitching her, was, was Zappa as this kind of 70s-era rock god. Um, and I told her that I didn't, I didn't particularly get Zappa until I was old enough to realize that he was more of a classical composer than a rock and roll musician. And she loved that. It, that was very much her perspective as well. And it frankly was where she and I bonded and became friends because um, that was my thesis. And it turned out that was how she viewed Zappa as well. Was part of the goal to, to paint him as kind of a, a sympathetic character? I mean, you, you know, you said you didn't view this, him this way, but I've always kind of had this picture of him as being prickly as, as maybe understating it. But, but you know, being, being kind of a, a difficult character, were, were you trying to make him a more sympathetic no, no, I wasn't. Uh, in fact, the inverse to a degree. I, I, the other thing that I mentioned to Gail, and I'm sure other people would have said this there, because I don't see how you paint a picture of Frank with any depth without going there. But I said, I told her I wanted to drive right into his misogyny and into the aspects of his personality and the how and how many band members he he alienated and the level of animosity that there was from many of the musicians that played with him towards him that I wanted to open, crack all of that open and get at it. But I think that where, where Gail trusted me was that I wasn't doing that in a gotcha kind of way. I, I don't, you know, I don't like those kinds of movies. I find them very shallow and, and, and it's just low hanging fruit. I wanted to paint a deep portrait of someone who I found to be very complicated and, and internally contradictory. Um, but that's also humanizing that. I mean, for me, humanizing someone is getting at their negative qualities as well as their positive. Um, it just wasn't a hagiography. Hey it wasn't saying he's just great and we're going to, you know, polish off the, the rough edges. <laughs> One of the things I was concerned about, because like, obviously I know enough about his life story to know that, that he died relatively young and, and what he we died of. And, and I was concerned that he would almost lean too much into at the end of his life, trying to, to give him some kind of redemptive arc or make him too sympathetic about character. But obviously he lost some energy and he was sore for a lot of the time, but he was very much himself until the bitter end, it seems like. He is Zappa with Zappa. I, and I love the ending of the film and not because I think we did anything that's genius, but but just because of where Zappa legitimately was at the end of his life. You know, as a doc filmmaker, I think it's incumbent upon you to, to dramatize truth to the best degree possible. That doesn't mean you're not lying your ass off, because of course you are in the service of story. But I just loved, I mean, not to spoil the film, but, but I am going to. I just loved that image when we found it in the archival. I knew it was the end of the film of Frank just sitting on this road case backstage while there's a standing ovation just beyond. And he's, it is not some perfect moment of closure. It is not some great redemptive you know, circle that has come to some beautiful, neat end. It, there's an ambiguity on his face and you don't entirely know what he's thinking. And I, and I don't think that it was, an, it was all good or bad. I think, he, I think he was swirling with a, a lot of complex emotion, which he swirled with his entire life. And I think he, he ended in many ways as he existed. Do you think he got to where he wanted to be by the end of his life? No, I don't. And, and I think that's a good thing. I think that I think that that Zappa was always striving. You know, there's there's ways the thing. One of the things that I really got from being so close to him over the years was I kind of suspected this, but it was really driven home by the by the vault media was if you look at an instance like the Val, like the Valley Girl thing and the, even the bite we have in the movie where he has this giant hit. And rather than like crank out another one or like go on a Valley Girl tour or whatever, 
Um, we're even making another album like that without Moon, just to sort of stay in that. He just went to, to UCLA and did this like hyper dissonant classical work. I don't think that's just Zappa saying to hell with commerciality, to hell with my hit. I'm just a contrarian. All these things that people, I think, quite superficially would think about him, sometimes because he would put that image forward. I get it. I mean, he would milk that image to a degree as part of his shtick. But to me, it was really about his artistic drive. And I have no doubt in my mind that had he not died around the Yellow Shark concert, he would have just gone and made another rock album. And I suspected that. And when I met with Steve Vai, I asked Steve that. And Steve said that that was true, that actually a lot of people don't know this, but as that Yellow Concert tour was winding down, because he didn't know when he was going to suddenly get super sick, right? He'd, he'd outlived the diagnosis by like three years. Uh, he was he was looking to put a band together with Vi, Ruth Underwood, uh, I think Scott Tunis, some other people, and make another rock-oriented album with some of the ensemble modern components. So he was really not stopping. He wasn't like, oh, I have finally heard my classical music played the way I wish. I can lay down and rest my weary head. I don't think that was going on in his mind at all. I think he was, I think he was really probably fairly pissed off that that his clock was stopping. I, I don't want to say he was like it seems like he was kind of hesitant to embrace rock and roll or pop music necessarily. But by the end of his life, do you think that it, that it was fulfilling for him in a similar way that the classical music was? Absolutely do. I think that, uh, I think that there were theses going around and I was getting some of them when I was making the film. Cause believe me, when you're making a Zappa film, every Zappa person contacts you and tells you, what the real story is that you have to make sure you use in your film, right? It's not like you were making a secret Zappa film. You were like, exactly. Out there, we were, so we were out knew. there. We had, yeah, we had 10,000 Kickstarter backers. I'm very accessible. It's very easy to email me. Uh, and believe me, I heard from everyone and everyone had a theory. Um, and one of those theories was that Zappa never really wanted to do rock. It was his day job. Uh, and he really was like a, a bitter, unsatisfied classical composer. I think that's absolute bullshit. I think that Zappa, uh, no one would have gone to, after he made Freak Out, to go to New York and spend the better part of a year on a stage at the Garrick Theater working on his act day after day after day after day. No one does that if they don't like it. It's just, that's insane. You know, he would have put a rock band together and he would have made more commercial music in order to pay for the classical. He didn't even do that. So if that was his agenda, he was an utter failure at it. Uh, I think the, the reality is borne out by... And I think people don't like this because they want to put everyone in a neat little box and, and close the box and be done with it. Zappa genuinely enjoyed working with different instrumentation and he was very good at it. He was a musical genius. It's just what, it, what he was. So uh, he started with, with classical orchestration when he was a teenager and then he discovered blues and, and taught himself guitar. Then he, uh, before that, drums, then guitar. So he was always working with different forms of instrumentation and the stuff he did with the marimbas with Ruth is quite innovative. Um, and the things he was, he would take from Stockhausen, put that into a rock piece. Uh, so I think it was really, you know, if you don't like Zappa's music, you don't like Zappa. Um, for me, the key that got unlocked, I think in my 20s, was when I sort of got all of it, at least for myself. I don't mean in some way I w a manifesto I put forward, but I could listen to the Yellow Shark and I could listen to Civilization Face. I could listen to, you know, Freak Out, and it would all just sound like Zappa to me. Maybe you'll disagree with this sentiment, but like I, he's not for everyone. Uh, no, absolutely, he's not. I don't. I don't disagree with that at all. Some people just say like come at come at it from the angle of you're just not trying hard enough, or maybe no, 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 no. Thing. I'm not that. I'm not that judgmental. <laughs> 
sounds like the idea was to make a, a movie that was for even the people who he's not necessarily for to show a, an interior life of an interesting person in some ways almost divorced of the music itself. Yes. There was no doubt that in my mind, Zappa's story was extremely compelling to anyone who cares about art, history, American history, politics, any of the, the sort of boxes that he ticks, whether you like him or not, care about his music or not, it is, it is such an astoundingly unique life story. I really believe that that would be compelling to anyone, no matter where they fell on the Zappa spectrum. I was not looking to make a film that would explain Zappa to people. I was not looking to make a film that would convert the unconverted. Uh, honestly, like, it's not my place. Zappa made so many records in his lifetime. It's like, go listen to the music, go, like do the work, legwork, you know, it's right there. Like Zappa's a really good, he's a good advocate for himself. He doesn't need me to, to, to lure you into his world. And I also don't like docs that, that try to do that. I think it's, it's not what cinema's for, you know, I think it's my job to tell an interesting story and, and an entertaining and compelling story. And so that's really, but I do believe to your point, yes, I absolutely believe that his story was compelling, whether you liked his music or not. When you're talking about the 60s and 70s, and especially in Los Angeles, you know, you touch on Manson a little bit. He's, he's you know, he's very much like in and around that that scene. Um, yeah. The thing that struck me is, you know, I've always, I've always thought of Zapp as being kind of at least like retroactively a bit of a cult artist in that like, you know, obviously like people who were into him were very into him, but like, there was kind of a cult of personality in his, in his own life. Like he was almost like a cult leader, the way people just gave up their lives and kind of devoted themselves to him. Yes and no. The, the thing about Zappa, I mean, I know what you mean, and it was certainly the era, but I would argue that Zappa was a, a, an anti-cultist, that he was anti-mythology and anti-cult, and that he would con he would continually tear down the communities that he had outside of his family and a very, very small group of friends that stayed consistent throughout his life. But most didn't, even if they were really close to him, even someone like Ruth, even someone like George Duke, even someone like Ian Underwood, people who had been with him from early on, um, certainly the original mothers who he was extremely close with, none of whom really stayed within the fold. Um, so he did not seek or maintain uh, a, a cult-like community. In fact, I would argue that he went out of his way to blow them up when they began to form around him um, and just you know, scratch the record off, you know, the needle off the record and start over. Um, and he did that over and over and over again to the degree that people didn't even know where they stood with him. So sure, there was a destabilizing... To, I, do, I know what you mean. There was such a destabilizing nature to to the kind of autocratic way he ran his bands and not really knowing where you stood with him and currying favor and all of that kind of drama that would swirl around anyone like that. But I mean, he really continually dropped a bomb into the middle of those communities and just scattered everyone. There are a lot of instances in, uh, in the movie of him being actually antagonistic toward his own audience. Yeah, and and his bandmates. I can't remember if he says this or somebody says this about him, but there is this kind of sentiment that he he had concerns about people liking him for the wrong reasons, about appreciating like the wrong things about his art, which I feel like 
you know, it's, it's, a, it's a sentiment that I can sort of relate to on a very small level of tell me you like this thing I did five years ago and it's not, I don't think it's my best thing. Are, are you at all kind of sympathetic to that? I mean, have you experienced that in your own work? I have. I, I, I've never cared about it personally. Um, uh, I've been in the business so long uh, and I started so young that I got adjusted at a really young age to this kind of duality existence where there's the you that you know and your family knows and your friends know and there's this you that other people know that's constantly changing and they're those and they're compartmental so i had like people who knew me from being on broadway then people who knew me from being in film school and people who knew me from acting in movies who didn't know that i made films and people who some small group of fans who liked the films and didn't like the acting. I mean, it was, it's always been so compartmental. Um, I've always been one of these people that just like, I've always felt a little divorced from, from the personality aspect of that. I just do the work. I, I make it as good as I can. And I put it out there and, and it's up to the world to do with it. I don't, you know, worry about a lot of that stuff, but, but I think, I don't think that's because I have some kind of overt humility or anything like nobility or anything. I think it's partly from the trial by fire of being a child actor where you're like really young and, and you're trying to figure out your identity and your identity is so caught up in all these other things. And I think in, not, in order to not go crazy, you just end up going, well, that's just other stuff. You know what I mean? And I'm just me and my, me and who I am at home with my friends. That's the real me. All that out there is other stuff. I think for Zappa, it was different because he came up at a time that was so movement oriented. 60s and 70s were just like hyper individualistic and movement oriented. And I think that he was uh, uh, a great believer. And I think he was always in fear of losing his ability to actualize as an artist, as an individual, if he was going to get shoved into a box. Now that I do sympathize with. I don't like movements that much. Like I, I kind of, I'm sort of suspicious of them the way Zappa was. Like, I'm not as antagonistic towards them as he was. He was outright rude. But, like, I don't like cliques and I don't like groups and movements. And I, I'm always suspect of them and not wanting – I don't want to join their clubs sort of thing. So that's an aspect of Zappa that I do very much relate to. I, I find it clouds my ability to make work. Um, that I care about. As you said, you're a child actor. Earlier this year, the HBO movie came out about, about child actors. And, and so you know as well as anybody that a lot of them kind of go out of their way to, to push back against that, to create a different identity, to really kind of move outside of show business. But you've always been in that orbit to some degree, whether in front or behind the camera. Was there ever a point in your life or your career when you really wanted to just, you know, go be an accountant or, you know, just really kind of get out of show business? No. Um, I mean, my interests have always been very specific since I was very young. Uh, I wanted to act and I wanted to write and direct. There was a point, and we get into this in showbiz kids, there was a point at which I just needed a break from acting. Um, I was just a little fried from being in the public eye for so long. And I really needed, I did want, um, I mean, this is somewhat what you're saying. I wanted to be able to just ride the subway and go to work and have a job that job remained in the business to a degree because I like to sharpen my skills as a, as a filmmaker. So I went and I partnered up with a production company in the UK and I, you know, got rid of my acting agent after freaked and I moved to London basically and directed TV commercials out of a production company in Soho for like a decade. And I, and I was pretty much under the radar and it was really great. <laughs> and it was what I needed. And I was just a regular Joe, like, you know, working for clients and, 
Uh, I was writing and working on my screenplays and things like that the whole time. So I wasn't divorced from, from my work, but I was divorced from the industry. Uh, and when I felt ready, I came back. But it, took, I, it was a longer absence than I expected because I, I really liked it. I liked not being <laughs> in, in the public eye. So um, you can, a fella can get used to that. <laughs> Insofar as you, like you were in the public eye, I'm, I'm sure there's never been a point in your life as long as you've been in like the English-speaking world and probably non-English-speaking areas where someone will recognize you on the subway. These are iconic roles we're talking about. Every day, every day, every day, every day. There was no escape. I mean, and, I was, and I'm okay with it. I started really young, so I'm really used to being recognized. Keanu has been one of my best friends my whole life, so he would come visit me in London and like we'd be you know, I don't know, at the National Gallery and like people would completely freak out. So uh, sure. I mean, I, I you know, I, I've been in the business really nonstop since I was about nine. Do you feel like you had to kind of work against your earlier success or, or that it was difficult to be taken seriously as a documentarian because people knew you as an actor? No, I, I, I honestly, maybe that's happened and I didn't, wasn't aware of it, but I went yeah. from making Freak, the next film I made was Fever, which I wrote and directed a very, very serious low-budget indie, neo-noir. Uh, no one had any problem financing it. They, they liked the script. They gave me the money. We made the movie we wanted to make. I was very happy with it. Um, I've never had a problem being taken seriously because of those roles. Um, uh, it's very, you know, the industry is I probably just too business-oriented. They don't really care who you are if they think you have a product that they can sell. Um, and the the public... You know, I don't, I don't really relate to that. So, you know what I mean? Like, I don't really know what the public even is. Yeah, you spent, you spent five years working on a Zappy documentary. Like, clearly, you, <laughs> you know, you're not, you're not making Marvel movies. Exactly. Yeah, I don't, I don't know who these people. I mean, I've got like yeah. a fan base that's like that stuck around from Freak through Fever through crazy shit I did in the commercial world back into docs and others and then back to bill and ted again they haven't seemed overly concerned i mean it may not be the biggest group of people in the world but they haven't had a problem did you miss acting most or, or all of the time when you were doing it not all the time i needed i needed the break and the thing is 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 i continued to study in fact i started working with some of the most renowned acting trainers after i stopped acting um i just hadn't had time before i mean i trained but I started acting professionally and ended up on two long running Broadway shows as a child. I went right into the movie. I had a really kind of a nonstop work career from about 12 to 24, 25, which is a long time. It's over a dozen years and they're formative, you know, years in your youth. Um, so while I was doing commercials and other kinds of work, I started working with trainers that I'd always wanted to work with. So I'd actually, been training for the last 15 years or so pretty vigorously, um, vocal and acting and movement training. Uh, so I, I was getting kind of my fix, but it was really fun to work with Keanu again. Like he and I, I mean, we've been really close, but it's really nothing like being in that kind of playground. It's different than just a friendship you have. It's, I guess it's like being in a band with someone and not playing together but you just hang out all the time. And then you're like, why don't we actually play? You know, um, that was extremely gratifying. So I would like to do some more professionally oriented acting, but it's, it's not stopping my, my directing work. I had Ed on the show uh, a few years ago and, you know, it was in the kind of the, well before the production of the movie, but you know, he was, he was talking about the, the film and, and the experience that the two of them had when they were writing it and, and the, 
the ways in which they really, they basically wrote the movies by embodying the characters. It sounds like. Yeah. How quick do you switch into that when you're, when you're with Keanu? Is that something that plays out at all kind of off screen as well? Not in the slightest. Uh, we're so different as people privately. We're, we're, we could not, we're culturally, physically, intellectually, completely different characters than those guys. We, it took work. We enjoy it, but it took work. It became comedic in rehearsals because everyone around us kept waiting for us to do the characters. And we were, you know, we're professionals. So like I was doing my physical work. I was coming at it in this very professional way. I was training, working with my acting coach, working with an Alexander trainer on the physical stuff I had to do. All this work was happening, but I wasn't Bill. I wasn't doing like Bill, right? <laughs> and who wasn't doing Ted. And we would do read-throughs and we would do script notes and we would finally get to New Orleans. We started doing physical rehearsals and we just wouldn't do the characters. And you could tell, I could tell it was really beginning to kind of freak Dean Pariseau out a little bit. Like maybe they can't do it. Like maybe, maybe they really don't know how to do it. And so at a certain point we had to, we just, we kind of just jumped in and did it, but it's not, uh, it's not second. It's not like it's not second nature, but it's not natural to who we are. And it's not how we, we could be goofy together. We both have, you know, similar senses of humor. and There's a lot of laughter, uh, but these guys are really specific. Um, and it honestly was, it took us a couple of days. I think the first day, I wouldn't say we were rusty, but they made the day kind of light in terms of what we shot. The second day, second day, we got into the marriage counseling scene, which is a, a big scene. And it was, it, it was incredibly fun. It was really like Bill and Ted were back for us personally. You were into filming when you had that, that feeling. Yes. I mean, I mean, I was day two of the filming after preparing for a good year. The camera has to be on you or it really, t- it took that long for you to really find that camera? No, I think you. the camera, I think, I think that we were doing all the internal work but uh, some, there's something, you know, Keanu and I both come from theater backgrounds. There's something about the physicality of actually doing the thing. It's the reason I dislike the audition process so much. There's something about the actual, the act of, the physical act of actually doing the performance that ignites the character in a way when you're doing these kinds of physical comedy roles. So that was why, I think. I think there's just, you know, having the wardrobe on, the lights on, the, you know, the other actors there go you just you just we just clicked into it but we've been doing prep up to that point for a good year the script had to be written and everybody had to kind of agree on a, a general premise but like but more abstractly than that did you did you get the sense that at some point you were going to return to these characters at some point there was going to just be another movie no <laughs> there was absolutely no thought in my head that I would ever make another Bill and Ted movie, not the vaguest, slightest thought. And honestly, you know, Keanu and I and Chris Matthews and Ned Solomon were having dinner at my house. I barbecued and they kind of just threw out this thing and they had never talked about, we talked, you know, I talked to Ed fairly regularly, never talked about making another movie. And they just threw out this idea and they were like, we think there could be something here. What do you guys think? It was very, you know, apprehensive and not definitive and not a, not a hard pitch. And we loved it. We just thought that it, 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 the idea of revisiting these guys and not trying to pretend they didn't have the ups and downs of adult life and, not, and, and, and really taking their destiny and just subverting it. Um, we, just, we just thought that was very playable. We thought, oh, I could... I can see how you play that. I can see how you play Bill at middle age with kids and wives and not having fulfilled his destiny. It's human. It's very, and it's very comedic. 
So that it started from that night. I think the the overarching lesson, big the moral, the takeaway is that you know things, regardless of how they look early on in life, for better or for worse, they never end up exactly like you expect. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing, and and that's obviously you know a an extremely relatable theme for any story about people this age, uh, and it just becomes much funnier when you add that the thing that didn't work out was this ridiculously grandiose destiny uh, for these two incredibly regular guys. And, uh, and then of course the thing that we really enjoyed and kind of latched onto about wanting to do a third was, was getting to play different iterations of ourselves who had not adjusted well to that, <laughs> to that lack of, of a fulfilled destiny. You've got kids. Are the kids old enough to appreciate Bill and Ted? And if so, what did, what did they think about the movies? Yeah, they really enjoy them. And I mean, I've got a, I've got a college student. So it's, you know, he's kind of grown up, up and, and through all of this stuff and, and, but they've all really enjoyed it. My, my youngest is 11 and uh, he, you know, he got to come to set when I was doing the prison makeup stuff, which was really hilarious. And, uh, and we all went to the drive-in for the premiere, which was a lot of fun. So yeah, it's been a fun thing to share with my kids. I mean, obviously, because there's such a big gap between the movies, they they knew of the other movies, um, uh, but it had this kind of, you know, that was dad's other life thing to it, right? And uh, so I think it's been fun for them to sort of kind of refuse my past with the present in a way, um, because now, you know, I think I think Kristen that did succeed in in and really capping off what was never intended to be a trilogy, but is really now is a trilogy. I don't think I ever even really thought of this until it came out and I saw people's reactions like, oh, I see, like we've actually created a trilogy now. Like we were so focused on just trying to make a, a decent movie and all of our energy was going into that all the time. Uh, but I, through my children, I was watching them and thinking, oh, like to them, it has this kind of, you know, not in a, not in a grandiose way, sort of more like the way it is in pop culture, a kind of canonical component now, um, which they can be part of, which they couldn't before. Mm-hmm.